Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Monday, September 11th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org, whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, It'll take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Once you click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. Perhaps even more exciting and rewarding is that you can go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that, before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they do that. 
and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any else to share with us, we would appreciate if you give us a call at 563-999-3581. Call that number, press 1 on your phone, it'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll see it, turn on the microphone, and announce you by your area code, and then we can have a conversation. And we appreciate when people do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention with this work is to be of service. And we appreciate it if you let us know how we can be of service. You can also email me at tjh at mindshiftersacademy.org, mindshifters-academy.org. And you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at yagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. If you do that, we will address your comment or question on the show, and then as time allows, send you a notification so you can listen back to the archives and hear the feedback or the input. So here we are on a Monday. We have plenty of time for comments, questions, answers, testimonials refutations, soliloquies, whatever you're up for today. It's been a a very full weekend. I don't know how it's been for anybody else, but my personal weekend was blessedly busy and full and lots of ups and downs emotionally. I have... uh, listen back to the last couple of support groups we had over the weekend and there was a lot of really good deprocessing going in the last two support groups. We have um, the option to do that on a regular basis almost every Tuesday and Thursday if you'd like to join us absolutely free. Those support groups run from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time. And uh, all the information you would need to join us there is available on the MindShiftersAcademy.org website. And there is a separate login info page for Tuesday and a separate one for Thursday. Again, those groups run from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time. So how can we support you? What's on your mind? If you've been in one of those groups lately and done some deep processing, what would you like to share if you've not been in one of those groups and you have a question about what is it you do in those, give us a call, 563-999-3581. Once you call that number, press 1 on your phone. And we can have a conversation. I've finished the work of reading Lessons 8 and 9 in the Way of Mastery prompted by comments in the question and answer section of the book A Walk in the Physical by Christian Sundberg. Also, through the weekend, I was listening to some of the My Big Theory of Everything book, which is one of the source materials for Christian Sundberg's work. Um a lot of overlap, a lot of experience examining 
what is this thing that we have that we call the ego? What is this programming that we have telling us that we have to be special? What, how can we start to dismantle that so that we have a greater sense that we're all in this together and that there is no person who is of greater value than another? And what does that do to our perception when we use that filter? What is it if I could allow that? And, um, you know, in, in the lesson five, we were talking about this, the keys to the kingdom. The third key is allowance. And what I have come to think about when I think about the term allowance is scanning for the early warning signs of tension or judgment or resistance and then breathing into it and softening and letting it go. Because we aren't actually taught an active process of allowing. And it seems paradoxical to say an active process of allowing because in the way of mastery, they define allowance as the cultivation of a way of looking at the events of your life, not as obstacles to getting what you want, but as stepping stones. Each one presents you with a blessing of the lessons required to heal the obstacles, not obstacles to success, but obstacles to your awareness conscious, active awareness of the presence of love as the source and ground of your being. So anything that comes up in you that judges you as better or worse than somebody else or a situation is not so good is an obstacle to your being able to see clearly, fully, directly in the moment that the source and ground of your being is this creative energy that's given rise to you and everything and everyone that you see and interact with. <clears throat> so allowance is that filter we can put on our view of the world that says everyone and everything is in this with me, is of equal value to me, is part of what I need to see, especially if I'm feeling any kind of a tension or upset that's created inside of me. And my mind might be trying to tell me that I'm feeling that because so-and-so did or said this or so-and-so is or isn't happening or so-and-so thing isn't happening. But when that happens, when I have a negative response, it's because I'm generating that within me. It's because I'm trying to pretend, in the general sense, that something that's true isn't true. Or I'm trying to pretend that what's false might work out to be okay or be true one day. And that's never going to work out well for me. 
So if nobody puts a hand up, I'm going to go back into some of these questions and answers from this the book, A Walk in the Physical. Now, again, in the beginning of this, we have to just point out that they, they talk very clearly about how they, whoever is giving him input for these questions and answers, <clears throat> they are not the be-all and end-all. And Christian himself says, I am no genius. I don't have any corner on the market of truth. I'm not here to tell you this is absolutely the way it is. These are just the impressions he's getting in response to these questions as he's asking to be shown, as he's going into a meditation, as he's living his best life the best way he knows how. And so take it with a grain of salt. And this will go against, some of these things will go directly against some people's beliefs, and that's okay. What we encourage you to do in a, in a in a, in a body of work like this, is to just notice when there's tension that arises in you on resistance. If you're sitting there saying, I don't believe that, that's okay. If you're sitting there saying, oh, yeah, this is perfect, this is great, that's okay too. It may not be the best thing for you to, the best thing is probably for you to be actively questioning everything that you think you know and believe. So here's a question, is there reincarnation? And the answer is yes, period, full stop. The soul is so great that one incarnation experience does not suffice for its purposes. You always remain you. The you that feels like you to you. That you has the experience of being and doing various things in its quest for the expansion of beingness the expansion of creativity, the expansion of love, and the expansion of joy. Some experiences necessitate the temporary forgetting of the rest of what one is because there is incredible opportunity and potential in that unique, specialized experience. The soul develops as it integrates experience. The soul evolves and retains its ability to express it's true loving nature, that is, to make love-based rather than fear-based choices. And it retains that ability and is working to express it and strengthen its ability to express it in various experiences and various highly constrained contexts. The next question is, do we plan our lives beforehand? Well, if you're reading this book, you know the answer to this. His answer is yes, because that was his experience, that he had a memory of being conscious and, and awake before coming into a physical body? So the answer is yes, but not every detail. 
the soul may choose to experience certain contexts or themes in order to facilitate the expansion of being. The individual is free to make free will choices within the planned contexts. The contexts that are agreed to may sometimes seem extreme from the human vantage point, yet the greater the contrast, the greater the opportunity for growth and expansion. Now, I have... I have the blessing, I have, I have the life experience of dealing with many people in the past 49 years in various stages of doing therapy and living life, and many of them would never want to repeat any part of their life experience. They have been so... I'll use the word tortured. They've been so upset, so dissatisfied with so much of their life experience that they are not in the least bit interested in any talk about reincarnation. I remember one one woman in particular who would just get... <laughs> The word apoplectic comes to mind. She would get so upset whenever anybody would talk about reincarnation because her life, she was in her late 50s, early 60s at the time, because her life had been so hard. It included childhood abuse, family upsets, serious illnesses in the family, friends who had committed suicide, struggles with drug and alcohol addiction, the the range of stuff. And yet, I I retained a a connection with that person for a good number of years, probably close to 20-some years. And I don't know whether you want to say she's come out on the other side or she has a whole new perspective on her life 15 or 20 years later and has actually chosen to adopt a view like Christian Sundberg's and what he just answered in this question and answer section that this has all been a fantastic, powerful learning experience. And so at various points in a person's life, he or she might be thinking, oh, this is the greatest, I love this. And then 15 or 20 years later, they may be thinking, I think I want to end my life now. This is horrible. I I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. And if they make it through that another 15 or 20 years later, they might be looking back on it with at least a whole different level of appreciation, perhaps not joy, perhaps not elation, but at least a different level of appreciation. So this is, we're not offering this as an absolute truth. Imagine what would happen at whatever level, if you're not in an absolute, the depths of crisis, if you could choose a filter that says, okay, like, um, oh, I forget his name, but the Richard, somebody that we had, he talked about the mandala of uh, the past, the future, you, me, and then the now moment. And he said, 
what if you choose the filter that says this is all happening from a source that is so completely loving that the point of it all is for me to find a way to look up upon whatever happens through that filter of love. How would that change how I see this moment, how I feel about this moment, and what I do with it? So that's the idea here. Not Here's the absolute truth. Reincarnation is real and souls go through all of this. But what would happen to my experience of life if I chose to look at it through that filter, does that help me get more flexible, to be more loving, to change the focus that I'm using to view, interpret, and then eventually respond to the life events around me? Area code five four one. You're in the air. Celinda here. Welcome, Celinda. How can we support you today? Well, I just love what you're saying today because I'm having an experience that's not too dissimilar from that. <laughs> and so, and I also promised to get on the air with worksheet and. Life has shown up on my doorstep several times, so I am back. Well, so you're having an experience that's not too dissimilar from what? From what you just read uh, or what you just talked about, Richard Moss's mandala and the um, experience with one of your clients that... uh, had an apoplectic experience from listening to reincarnation talk and um it, but it has more to do with her shift and i've been shifting a great deal and wondering a very much why uh, although i know why so it's not really a judgment question why um realizing that we wake up when we wake up that um i've spent as i mentioned before most all of my life complaining about what i didn't get instead of waking up to what i did get and that was part i think of my previous um a previous uh, uh, worksheet and my worksheets today, but this awareness that I was given so many gifts through life and uh, so many other gifts through life, which I saw as trials and tribulations, and now it shows, uh, it's like I'm being shown the, the journey of soul in this life that's yeah, pretty cool. <clears throat> and it, so you're 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 at at a place where you're looking back on it with less negative judgment. Oh, with a lot and and a, a more expanded from as I perceive it awareness about what my grief is about, what my um, joy is about, and. It centers around tears. Like, I'm very sensitive, and I will cry for any reason. I can cry 
from beauty. I can cry from just sheer joy. I can um, from humor, from um, uh, haunting, haunting sensation of what of wanting to go home. Uh, that comes across uh, through the beauty, uh, through the joy, and through the community. And it's just, it's all coming together to realize we don't just process grief in one way. Like I process grief, that that pain, uh, which expresses usually in tears for me, um, if, for any number of reasons, for any number of reasons. And so now I can look at it and realize that, that there's a healing process going on if I uh, feel reduced to tears because of a connection, for example, with a person or a place or uh, um, um, anything. And that, yeah, it's a grief in a way. It's the healing release of all those tears of grief, but it's also this uh, incredible sense of, of joy and belonging that's, that's coming up through that expression of beauty, whether it's uh, a committee of people forming together for some cause to beautify the town, or whether it's um, a horse coming into the, the tape at the end of a race, or a ballet, or, or it's just a mixture of all those emotions at once. And okay. <laughs> I'll take whatever it is because I really don't understand it. But I feel better after. All right. Did you also say that you wanted to share a worksheet you had done? Yes. Um, I wanted is to that share something that you want to do now? Yeah, I want to do go through it. And um, what I'm using is Magdus, and I want to use Magdus' forms of her seven-step simplified worksheet up until I've used it all up. And then I'll go in, and I'm going to go ahead and get the most recent wake-up sheet, uh, mine, um, I'm sorry, forgiveness sheet, um, and also the abbreviated form that shows up on the WhatsApp because I like them on paper, and I'll continue my worksheets from then on on them. <clears throat> I am now ready. <laughs> and so it started out with a worksheet I did several days ago, call, um, which led me to a goal that I didn't even realize. I mean, uh, on and uh, a feeling that I didn't even realize I had a connection. And if we want to do that one, we'll start on that one. And I can do the other one another time. All right, so, so let me get clear, please. Let me get clear. Are these worksheets you've already done and you're just reading them to report them to us, or you would like help working through a worksheet right now? Well, I've done them. And I've come to these conclusions, and I, I'm always open to clarification, to more um, concentration, less words, things like that at the same time. Um, but I've pretty much done them, and so I'll just All right. share so them with you. Would you like to read one and, and share it? Okay. Um, all right. This is the first one. This is the Magda's form. I feel unsafe 
and was triggered by my dream. Okay, in my dream, I, I am uh, in the dream. I am in danger and trying to get to a safe place while others are being harmed all around me. The thought I use to cause my feelings about how I see it. Oh, and also my joy level is about five because I'm not really triggered in a big way. But I also uh, had shared with you before, I think, that I, t- I have flatlined. I've learned to flatlined uh, since I was very small, so I don't feel my feelings. I don't even feel my depression, so, and I obviously don't feel my joy. And so I'm just kind of flat until something triggers me. Okay, um, so let's come back to the worksheet, please. Okay. I feel unsafe and was triggered by my dream. And how I see it is I am in a dream. In the dream, I am in danger and I'm trying to get to a safe place while others are being harmed all around me. The thoughts I use to cause my feeling about how I see it. I am unsafe and in danger of harm or death, being harmed or dying while looking for safety. While always looking for safety how I want it. I want to always um, uh, have others be kind and protect me so I can be safe and free from harm or death. That's the goal. Does that seem in alignment? One more time. Read the goal. I want what? I want to always have others be kind and protect me so I can be safe and free from harm or death. Or I, I always want others to be kind and protect me so I can okay. be safe that's, and free. That's, okay. that, that's good enough, and that'll that'll stir up some stuff. So go on. Okay. I pause, breathe, and reconnect to the love that I am. I bring awareness of my true essence and being forward as I complete this worksheet. And I just reflect on all the people that have shown unconditional love towards me, kindness and protection for me. And so I I put those down just to remind me to connect myself. And breathing is is really a big issue for me, so I will breathe, stop, and um, make a little space for myself to breathe. And then number six is holding my love filters conscious, active, and present. I now willingly release, remove, and I like the word dissolve and cancel how I want it. And then I want others to always be kind and protect me so I can be safe and free from harm or death. And I breathe and ask Rucha de Kucha to show me what I need to know about this issue and these issues and this dream. And then I pause and quietly receive. And this is what came up. 
It's more like a, a vision or a promise. I see harm all around me, but in this now moment, I am safe even though I feel unsafe. Am I on track here? It, it isn't about on or off track. If this is what happened when you did the worksheet, that's what you want okay. to focus on. Okay, thank you. I am grateful and ask Source Uruka to help me form a loving goal that I offer to my trigger and myself and reflect on all of the above. I am now willing to commit to being safe, even if I feel unsafe, by practicing blessing, one blessing a day, and envision uh, or envisioning. I, I think of a blessing as an envisioning process today uh, on any specific topic, you know, anything that shows up, and one forgiveness sheet on resistance on resistance that's what on my yeah resistance I can't read my own writing um, that's what showed up resistance I now and resistance feel to what just resistance in general I am probably the most like uh, Julie said one time on the show I am probably the most unwillingly willing learner of the Aramaic tool process. And and I really chuckled because, yeah, uh, resistant on all levels yeah, of myself. Okay. Um, I think that's it. On resistance, that's my one worksheet, forgiveness worksheet, guys. I chose. I now feel my resistance to feelings, to any feelings, more clearly, um, and changing and about changing my patterns. I want to stay little and helpless and lost and still stuck. I don't want to do the growing up here in this imperfect world. <laughs> Does that touch on perfectionism right there? <laughs> I want my world to be perfect. It's um Well now that's there's a goal to put on a worksheet over and over and over again. Uh let me write that down so I don't forget it. And the goal is I want my world to be perfect, period. There we go. This is what helps me the clarity and, and conciseness, hitting the target. Thank you. Well, if you're like most of us, um, when when we're using a full paragraph, uh, 
to say what could be said in a short sentence were in the resistance you talked about earlier. I'll have to chew on that one. I don't quite make the connection. So that's good. Thank you. All right. So so look at it this way. Michael Rice is very fond of saying, here are these We'll call them pseudo-solutions of the non-being mind. The being mind, the soul, the spiritual faculties of the soul, give us all of these skills and abilities. Insight, intuition, clarity, creativity, etc. And the ego comes along and says, um, I can do it better. and has a cheap knockoff. I don't have to do the work. I can just power through and so the the number one false solution of the non-being mind is I'm going to figure this out so we're going to rationalize our way into the spiritual growth we think we need and it never works. So if I'm using a lot of words to say something that could be said in one or two or three words, I'm probably in that rationalizing, I'm going to figure this out mode. And so... You, you said a lot of words and you did the worksheet, which is wonderful. You want to do those again and again. And then at the end of it, you said, oh, there it is. I want my world to be perfect. There's the goal. Clean, simple, that will encompass dozens of other goals that you'll rationalize into three and four paragraph statements. Just go right there to that one over and over again. And that particular goal, I want my world to be perfect, might get resonated by um, somebody wearing the wrong color shoes one day that doesn't match their dress, and you think you're upset about that. It can get triggered by anything that goes on. The truth of it is, it's just another instance of, I want the world to be perfect the way I think it should be perfect. Rather than just allowing, this is part of what I was saying earlier in in the intro, from the Way of Mastery Lesson 5, allowance is one of the keys to the kingdom. Allowance is a way of seeing everything that happens, including any negative response you might generate to anything that happens, seeing it as a stepping stone in your life rather than a roadblock. Seeing it as the next perfect thing for you to embrace, understand, and move through with learning rather than blame. 
Again, the five keys to the kingdom are desire, which has got nothing to do with craving or obsession or, you know, fixation on one thing or another. It's this ability to tune into the flow of life, the flow of the creative energy source that wants to express uniquely through you in each moment. And you tap into that, and then the next one is intention. You you decide to keep your intention focused on staying in alignment with that creative energy flow and learning to let it guide you or at least inform your choices throughout life. And then the next step, the next key to the kingdom is allowance and I just read the definition earlier. It has to do with seeing everything that happens as part of what life is showing you rather than something that's blocking you from getting what you need or want in life. And then after you've done this allowance, which I I reworked and interpreted as my spending a lot more time and energy scanning my body for the earliest warning signs of any kind of an upset and then releasing it. So I'm quick to breathe and soften and step back into that state of allowance whenever I generate resistance. And then the next step, the next key to the kingdom is surrender. Instead of surrendering to anger or fear, I surrender to be taught by love in each moment, by life. I ask to be shown, okay, what's mine to do here? How can I be a blessing to myself and others? How can I see the, the, this situation as it's unfolding instead of through a filter of fear or anger or resentment or resistance? How can I see it through a filter of love and allowance? and see it as life literally teaching me how to be more loving in this moment, how to giving me another opportunity to choose again, to choose for love in this moment. And the way of mastery says, if you do those first four steps in the keys to the kingdom, your life is going to have such tremendous shift in ways that you prefer it to be. Your life's going to get so much better in your eyes. It's going to be tempting for you to take credit for it. But since you don't even know when you were created, you don't know how or who created you, and you're no different than any other spark of awareness that has ever existed, you tap into that and you realize we're all in this together, and I am not the creator of everything. I am simply here in charge of this one little focus of mind energy that we call my awareness and I return to that humility which has me allowing myself to see everyone and everything as their highest and best and an equal part of my existence and the flow of life and when I do that I give all the credit always to the flow of life and creation rather than deciding for ego to take credit myself for what I'm experiencing.
that make sense? Totally and perfectly. And um, just when you started talking, I want my world to be perfect. And everything you said is uh, reinforcement and encouragement for me to continue on with what's happening in my life right now is I had a flash. I want my world to be perfect so I can be perfect. So I can be perfect. Well, so like combine that, that. C- combine that goal that you put on your worksheet where you're going to cancel the goal, and the goal is I want my world to be perfect. Combine that with a mantra or meditation that that has you asking repeatedly, continually, on a regular basis, asking to be shown how the world is already perfect just as it is. Yeah, that really um, helped when you said that, asking to be shown. I'm writing that down. My brain's pretty much on paper and always have been. If you would put that together with a series of worksheets canceling the goal for your world to be perfect or for you to be perfect, they're pretty much the same as you just pointed out, you're going to stir things up at a whole new level. And nobody knows what you're going to see or what's going to get revealed, but it will be much to your advantage because it will start stirring up things that have been locked in place in your mind for a good long while and help help you continually create these patterns that are not satisfying to you. Um, it's already happening, Dr. Tim. What's happening is I've had two situations now, one with my husband and one with a very, very good friend who's having dementia problems. And it's probably one of the rare souls that I can speak on deep levels about spirituality and she's as lucid as a bell when we go there but as for her physical life and what's going on in her physical life she's 88 I believe she's having a real problem Um, and um, with my husband for the first time one of the first times that I, I stopped reacting or I didn't engage in reacting I probably the first time I did not even engage in reacting um, I just asked him a question about what was it about my behavior that was interfering with his survival needs that I needed to be aware of so that I could modify in some way without throwing myself under the bus. And um, it changed the whole interaction between us because I wasn't angry. I was curious. What was it? And, and for the first time in our almost 40-year relationship, um, within the last few months, but this was the first one where he just came back the next morning and apologized. I had I don't ever remember him apologizing for anything when we, ever we got into an argument before, 
uh, or making a connection with how um, in an apologetic sort of way, uh, really owning it verbally that he was at fault, um, that he was at fault for his portion of it, not for my portion of it. And it's like, it's a miracle. It's a miracle that we can apologize to each other. And so I just want to share that. And then with my friend who's having these dementia problems and going down what I thought was a rabbit hole of all these different experiences that she was talking about, and they may be, they may not. But I just queried the question to her, um, is it possible that these experiences that I have been telling you are not real, are from another dimension or another life. And you should have seen her eyes light up. You know, I was just offering the possibility, not that they were. And you should have seen her eyes light uh, light up. And the the sense, uh, and then I came back and told her, you don't know what a blessing you are for me. And she actually just, you could see it was like a um, a poor plant that was just about dehydrated to death that just all of a sudden just went sucking up this moisture. It was, it was wonderful. It was miraculous. Didn't have anything with me doing anything. It was like both of us were opening spaces for each other. What what a, a delightful miracle. What a roomy experience in a way. It, it was just ecstatic. And so I thought I'd share that with you. Lovely. And so right. uh, is there the anything last, else you weren't want to share in this time? We've got about seven or eight minutes left. Just real quick, um the very end of this relationship was the awareness that I flatline and that it is directly connected to my experience, my first temper tantrum when I just was squelched in a very physical, violent way. Um, And it had to do with I want my own way. And so I just thought I would uh, share that as that was the wrap-up. I want my own way and that I flatlined. And it's okay. And when you say flatline, you mean you shut off your emotions? Is that what you mean when you say flatline, that you just shut down your emotions? Well, it's not just my emotions. Uh, When the stress gets really high, my vision shuts down. I can't see I can't think, I can't hear, and I can't act. They're all shut down. Yeah, plus my feelings. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, and it's all okay. All of it, uh, it, it's, it's all okay now. Uh, I'm beginning to feel the tension, the emotions, but, and all of the above, but it's all okay because I don't have to defend myself. I just need to be. And uh, what you were saying, um, stop trying to figure it out. Just let it be. It's all good. 
And it's just, it's an awareness that's just growing, Dr. Tim. It's like a little seed, a little seed of, of awareness or, or peace or consciousness or I don't know what you would call it. It doesn't matter. All righty. Well, I thank you for the sharing. I'm glad that you're finding some results that are useful in applying the worksheet, and I'm always grateful whenever anybody chooses to share some of their work. It's um, and I thank you. I thank you. You're such a blessing, just like all of us. Well, you're quite welcome and deserving. I will mute you so we can move on to our second hour. Thank you again for the call. Um, I've gotten the uh, a notification from Jeannie that they are going to be gone this week, and she's asked me to play some some shows, and I'm struggling to find that list that she wants me to play today. I had it uh, lined up. So here it is. Today we're going to be playing Communication, and I don't know exactly what this is, but he does have a series of files on the uh, communication. Did you hear what I think I said? This might be that. But I will start this. This will be the beginning of your second hour. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love and everything else is false. Here is your second hour. We'll investigate the fact that there are two types of communication. Generally speaking in the world, what we're taught to do is a thing that I like to call projection communication. And that is, we take the output of our minds, what's going on between our ears, and we talk as though what's going on between our ears is actually what's happening out there. As opposed to using language that recognizes that what's going on between our ears is unique to us. It belongs to us. It belongs to no one else. And to just give an illustration of that, I'm going to do a piece of art. We've actually done this in a couple of other workshops, but this illustrates the point for us. And that is, if I draw a drawing here, many people look at that drawing and recognize it. And what they'll recognize it as is anything from a Volkswagen to somebody peeking over a table to Kilroy. Oftentimes we'll get people who will look at that and say, oh, well, that's a two-door igloo. And my offering is that what that is is that's lines on a board and that's all. The meaning of a two-door igloo or a Volkswagen or someone peeking over a table or Kilroy comes from the content of the observing mind. So when this person looks at these lines on the board, depending on the content of their mind, that framework will resonate or cause brain cells to fire 
And when brain cells fire, information that is internal to us fills in and gives meaning to this framework. Now, if we took someone from the jungles of Guatemala, this person has never seen anything more complex than a dugout canoe, and we showed them these lines on the board, how long do you suppose it would take for them to figure out that that's a two-door igloo? What teaching would you have to do? What experiences would you have to give this person from the jungles of Guatemala to get them to even conceive of this possibly meaning a two-door igloo? We have somebody who lives in a jungle setting in a subtropical region of the world. They've probably never seen temperatures go below 70 degrees. They've never read a book. They've never seen a television. What is this thing that comes from the sky you tell us about that comes down in white flakes? And when it lands on my hand, it is what I know as water. What are you talking about? I mean, how are you going to explain that to the person from the jungles of South America as you attempt to explain a two-door igloo? And then, how are you going to explain to this man that there's actually a place in the world where a wave jumps up out of the ocean and it is so cold that that wave actually freezes in midair, solid, takes what he knows is a liquid water and turns it into something solid. And that something solid, you're going to find a way to saw this water, to cut this water into blocks and build a structure that people can live in. Water turned solid and you live in it. How is this guy ever going to make any sense of that? Well, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to give him information. You're going to have to help him to build brain cells. And when I talk about building brain cells, I'm not talking about building new physical structure. I'm talking about putting information into that structure. When you look at that and go two-door igloo, you have that information already in your mind. You have all the files that it takes, and, and they'd be pretty significant when you really recognize how many files have to fire simultaneously to give you the idea of a two-door igloo. And how much work you're going to have to do for this fellow to have the brain cells that can even start to conceive of a two-door igloo. So in order for him to hold that meaning, he's got to have that content. When we look at communication, in order for any mind to hold a meaning, that mind has to have that content. And once a mind has that content, if that mind utilizes projection communication, i.e., if I said that is a two-door igloo, there's nothing there about an igloo. The words I'm using describe an interior reality that I hold as a possibility for that framework. 
Now, let, let's imagine for a minute that our two-door igloo is a very sensitive being, very sensitive person. And I hold, let's say for instance, maybe I was um, an Eskimo and life in the igloo is very painful for me. And so I start to describe all of the experiences that an igloo means to me, all of the content that I have, but I use words that make everyone around me think that everything I'm experiencing inside of me is all the fault of the igloo. And this sensitive igloo goes, what, you're blaming me for all of that pain? But I had nothing to do with it. When we utilize projection communication, we use words that attempt to say that the content of our mind must be about someone else. And once you recognize how this mind works and the role that words play in it, what you'll recognize is that the words that you use to describe the content of your mind are describing the content of your mind. The minute you insist that those words must be true about someone else, and that someone else doesn't hold that as true about them, you're going to end up with a conflict. And chances are you'll put an end to communication in that situation. Our objective with this workshop is to assist people to be able to open their communication. When I can use what we'll describe tonight as responsibility communication, I'm going to use words that represent to whoever I'm speaking the reality that I understand that I am describing the content of my own mind and that my communication is about taking the content of my mind and intact getting that meaning into your mind. We're going to describe that as communication. That's going to be our definition. And when you decide that you really want to communicate, I would offer that needs to be your primary goal. I hold a reality that belongs to me. I am attempting to get the reality that belongs to me intact into your mind. If I can do that, I have communicated successfully. If I use words that tell you that the content of my mind is accurate about you, then I'm not likely to be able to communicate. I'm not likely to be able to get the content of my mind accurately into your mind because I'm going to run into some interference. We're going to offer a definition tonight of a word. And the definition we're going to offer is that a word is a tool of communication. Does that sound like a reasonable definition to everyone here tonight? That a word is a tool of communication? Hello? Yeah, I need to hear you. And when we use words, is it reasonable to assume that, that wor those words are indicative of an interaction between two or more people? 
In this case, I'm one and you as a group are the other. So my using words is an indication of an interaction between us. Reasonable? Okay. So now, what I'm going to ask you to do is to notice that right now in your head, there are words running. And you're not communicating those words with anyone. If words are tools of communication, indicative of an interaction between two, who's in there with you? Who's talking to who? What is it that gives meaning to everything that your mind sees? And particularly if you're in some sort of emotional upset, also informs you that your upset is the responsibility of the person you're attempting to communicate with. And I would offer that your reality, that is the output of your mind, is your responsibility and your responsibility only. If you attempt to communicate to me in a way that indicates your reality must be true about me, let's say I've done a particular behavior, and you insist that that behavior means something, your insistence that that behavior means something really means that if you did the behavior I did, that that's what it would mean. But if you insist that when you describe your reality that that meaning must be true about me and I don't happen to hold that as true and I don't happen to like that, then chances are we're going to put an end to communication. So communication isn't about insisting that someone else agree with your reality. That's a whole different process than communication. Communication is about getting the reality you have intact into the mind of the person that you're speaking to. And there's kind of a, an interesting uh, thing to do with translations. There's a, a website you can go in and you can put a phrase into this website and it will translate it into different languages for you. And oftentimes, you know, you hear people who speak different languages and let's say you, you're talking with someone who speaks Italian and there's someone else who speaks Italian with them and they're trying to communicate something with you and, and they turn to their friend who's also Italian and says, well, how do you say that in English? And their friend says, you can't say that in English. There's certain ideas that just aren't translatable because I, words describe content of mind and content of mind is unique and individual and cultural. Certain cultures don't have the same experiences that others have. And so their ideas are not translatable. So the, the name of my main workshop is Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And so we put Why Is This Happening to Me Again into a translation program that comes up with translations from several different languages. So here's Why Is This Happening to Me Again when it translates into French. Why this occur is with me still. And then if we take that and translate it back into English, and then we put that translation into German, then what it will come out in German is, why step this still is with me up? And then if we put that into Italian, what comes back from an Italian translation is, why ago a step this anchor is with me in on? 
you can see things are getting a little more complicated. Let's take that and put it into a translator and put it back into English. And in English, what it comes back as, why has a stage this shoring is with me inside on? Interesting little change from why is this happening to me again. But it's kind of an indicator of what happens when you go through the brain cells of different people. We've all you know, played that parlor game where we whisper a phrase to someone and it goes around the room and see if you recognize it when it comes out of the other side of the room and often it's not recognizable. And the reason is not because people don't remember the phrase. The reason is because the phrase is a string of words that resonates content. And that content that fires then is communicated with a string of words that accurately represent for the person who was listening the first time around. It brings words forward to describe the content that came forward and so the ideas have changed. By the time you get that through 20 different minds, 20 different translations, because the truth is none of us speak the same language. Oh, we call it English. Winston Churchill said we have the privilege of being separated by a common language. Because when I speak a word, I naturally expect that the word means the same for you as it does for me. And when you understand how the human mind works, that's simply not the truth. It just doesn't work that way. In fact, words are so powerful at directing human perception that if you go back 2,000 years ago in the Aramaic language, we hear a phrase when it's translated through the Greek that goes something like this. The eye is the lamp of the soul. If the light for you is darkness, how deep will your darkness become? Have you ever read that phrase out of the Greek scriptures and gone, huh, what, what does that mean? If we go to the Aramaic, here's what that phrase says. There's some interesting Harvard research that was done that says that in a time frame where 10,000 brain cells fire, that is there are 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity, that the maximum amount of information that shows up in the conscious mind is nine bits of data. It's estimated in that same time frame that there are approximately 20 trillion bits of data potentially available. So our mind uses a tiny fragment of what's going on in the world and takes a tiny fragment of what goes on in the mind to build its reality. And what was said in the Aramaic 2,000 years ago was the perceptual output of your mind, your reality, is the light or the guide for your journey through the 20 trillion bit world. It is the light for your earthly life. In Aramaic, darkness was hostility or fear. And so that next sentence says, if the light, that is the thing that guides you, is darkness. In one of our earlier workshops, we made a couple of inquiries of people. We asked folks how many had ever held a newborn child. And we asked each person who had held a newborn child to give us a descriptor that described the essence of that newborn.
and we put a list on the board and the list that we came up with was that the newborn was awesome, was love, was purity, peace, sweetness, inner sense, joy, wonder, and angelic. And we noticed that every word that described the newborn was some variation on the theme of love. And we offered the thought that that, that love, the words that describe the newborn, are the words that describe our essential nature. And that our essential nature, our being, is love. That in Aramaic is light. If the light for you is darkness, and then we ask people, how many have ever done something you regret? Anybody here ever do something you regret? And then think back to a time when you did something you regretted and, and look at what you were feeling as you did that. And we created another list. It's interesting to note, never in all the thousands of people that I've asked these two questions of, has anything from this side of the list ever turned up over here when we asked people when they did something they regretted? Regret always involved some form of hostility and fear. In Aramaic, that's darkness. And so what Yeshua was saying 2,000 years ago is there is a way to keep your intelligence turned on, and there is a definable way to turn it off. If hostility or fear, if that for you is the light, then how deep will your darkness become? What kind of things will you do to destroy yourself if the activity of hostility or fear is in your mind when you do a behavior. So this perceptual mind, and, and I, I like to use an example of, you know, how many here have ever been to Mammoth Cave? Anybody ever been to Mammoth Cave? It is absolutely mammoth. I mean, it's unbelievable the size of this cave. Imagine that we put you in Mammoth Cave and we give you a pen light. Now, in Mammoth Cave with a pen light, you can see one little tiny fragment of the cave at a time. I mean, it's just so huge, it's unfathomable. And that pen light can only show you the tiniest bit of it at a time. That's kind of like the human 9-bit mind looking in a 20 trillion bit world. Now let's imagine that we told you that we have a clear plastic bag and we put a million dollars worth of diamonds in the bag somewhere out in plain sight on the wall of the cave and if you can get the diamonds and get out of the cave alive, they're yours. What would be the most important skill you could have? Wouldn't it be the ability to point the light in the right place at the right time for what you need to do next in the cave to get to the diamonds and get out with them? Let's imagine that you use the light and you look and you look and you carefully search the wall of the cave and finally you see that glitter of the diamonds and you go, I've got them, there they are. And in order not to lose them, of course, you keep the light shining on the diamonds and you go charging off toward the diamonds. And you don't use the light to show you the 30-foot pit in front of you. You've got a serious problem, right? Well, that's exactly the same if you allow either hostility or fear to enter into your mind. If so, your lights are out. And if that becomes your guidance, then you'll do things you regret. And that's that phrase, how deep will that darkness become? If you want to do real communication in your relationships, in your life, the first thing you need to do is maintain intelligence.
The first step to maintaining intelligence is to keep the lights on. You've got to keep love active in your mind. And many people have thought of it as a religious principle when they said to Yeshua 2,000 years ago, what's most important in the law? And it's made to sound like some kind of something that belongs to some old fogies in the desert and, you know, thousands of years ago, and it really doesn't have much to do with us modern, updated people today. But he said the first law was, when you think of an object of attention like the Creator, your neighbor, or yourself, you've got to keep your lights on. You've got to stay connected to love. Because if you don't, then darkness is your guide. How deep will your darkness become if hostility or fear is your guide? So that becomes the first rule to communication. You want to make sure that you stay connected and you keep your lights on. You keep love active in your mind. And Yeshua goes on to tell us about the power of words... In fact, he says that every idle word will be accounted for. Now, one of the things we do a lot in this work, there's a course we do called Laws of Living, and in Laws of Living, we get into a thing we call regulatory speech. And regulatory speech is that the words that the mind uses to regulate our physiology, to regulate our creative process, and to regulate what we see in our world. And so that's called regulatory speech. And the, the words that people use create such an impact in their physiology, and most people don't recognize that their words have that kind of power. Yeshua gave it so much emphasis that he said, every idle word will be accounted for. Now, when we interact with people in laws of living, we, we actually play a game we call the regulatory peach game. It's kind of interesting how it got the name regulatory peaches. During the laws of living course at Heartland, our teaching center, we were doing this course and there was a, a woman that was there with her three-year-old son. The little guy's name was Orion. And Orion was sound asleep on his blanket beside mom, and, and for a good part of the day, we've been talking about regulatory speech, and Ryan's up, and he's coloring, and he's listening, and he goes to sleep, and finally, he's just waking up out of a sleep as we're getting ready to take an intermission. And someone has gone back into the kitchen and brought out a huge bowl of peaches for a snack. And Orion, kind of rubbing his eyes, wakes up and looks over at these peaches coming out and being placed on the food bar, which is in our classroom. And he says, just loud enough, of course, for everybody in the room to hear, Mom, are those regulatory peaches? Of course, we've been talking about regulatory speech all day. And so we call it the regulatory peach game. And what we do is we invite people to point out to each other the kinds of words that they use and the kinds of power phrases that they use. When people first start to play that game, they oftentimes become very upset because every other word out of their mouths relates to some form of hostility or fear. And oftentimes we'll see people when we, you know, we ask everybody's permission, are you willing to play this game? And, oh, yeah, it sounds great. Sure, point my words out to me. But there comes a point where people are like, well, well, why don't you just let me talk? I can't say anything. You just keep... It's like, no, all we're doing is pointing out your words. 
And when people use words, they have no idea what kind of power those words have oftentimes. I remember working with a young man from uh, uh, one of the northern states. He had moved to Atlanta. He had a lot of challenges with his parents, and like he was out of there. He was not having anything to do with them. And one day his parents called and said they were on their way to Florida. They were coming through Atlanta and wanted to visit with him, spend some time with him. The first words out of his mouth were, my parents are a pain in the you-know-what. The day his parents arrived, he got hemorrhoids. The day his parents left, his hemorrhoids left. That's the power of our words. Watch how you communicate with yourself and that your communications toward yourself come through a mind with the lights on, where love is present. Because when you utilize hostile and fearful power phrases toward yourself, you can be creating things in your life that you really don't want to create. You can be creating things in your life you really don't want to create. And once you recognize that, then you start looking at those power phrases. Because what we know is we live in a world of energy. We don't live in a world of matter. And in this world of energy, the energies that we engage in determine how our world unfolds around us. For instance, if you watch people whose power phrases are things like, I can't stand that, what you'll find is people who end up with foot and leg problems. I can't stomach that. You'll see people oftentimes who have digestive problems. That's a pain in the neck or any other body part and they end up with problems in that part of their structure because as an energetic system, the structure is always listening and giving a quality to the frequencies we engage in with our thoughts and with our words. There's a cell biologist named Bruce Lipton. We have a, a DVD called Mind Body Bioenergetics and that DVD is a one-hour television interview with myself and a one-hour television interview with this fellow named Bruce Lipton. He's a cell biologist and what Bruce is showing is that when you think a thought, and of course that's represented by a word, when you think a thought, that thought literally turns into a molecule in your structure. It solidifies as an energetic device we call a molecule or a neuropeptide. That neuropeptide circulates around in your structure until it finds a cell that has a receptor site that matches. It locks onto that receptor site and then the cell replicates the thought chemically. The neuropeptide is replicated and you get to live with the chemistry of your thoughts. There's an interesting video on YouTube. I just got an email about it and I'm not sure where to find it except that it's it, the first letters on it are EFT if you want to look it up. It just was put on there in the last day or two. And what it shows is live blood analysis. When someone is in a normal, healthy, happy state and how the blood cells move and how they look. And then in this experiment what they did is they had the experimenter and someone who had no idea what was going on, they showed the blood of both of those people, the live blood of both of those people. And then they sent the fellow who is the participant out of the room, and the experimenter sends hate to this fellow. 
And then they bring him back in the room immediately and they do more live blood analysis on both of those people. The blood of the person sending the hate was a disastrous mess. When you look at the way blood is supposed to look under live cell analysis, it was just, I mean, it was so graphic, you could see the difference in it, by the person sending the hate. To hate another is like taking a poison and hoping someone else will die. And then, looking at the blood of the person it was sent to, his blood had also deteriorated. Not, I don't think, because that person was sent hate, but because we are resonant beings, if we have hate in us, then the energy of someone else's hate has a place to land. There's resonance there, and landing in us, it can produce a result in us. And so our words become a real energetic key to how vital and alive our energy system is. And we want to look at that and be responsible for that. One person said that tears are words that the heart cannot express. I would offer that a lack of communication is the cause of death. Oh, Michael, come on now, isn't that a little extreme? Not when you recognize that we're energetic beings and when there's something we don't want to communicate about, it's something we have a thought about that is of hostility or fear. It's something, generally speaking, that we don't want to deal with, that we don't want to hide, that we don't want to communicate about. And it creates such pain. And the insight the person had who said, tears are the words the heart can't express, is this body-mind unit trying to warn us that there's something we need to be dealing with. And when we refuse to communicate and deal with something, we lock that energy inside of us. And it produces disastrous results. When we can open and communicate, then we can bring that energy out and expose it to the light. And being exposed to the light, we create a change in that energy. And that change leads to higher levels of health because when we hold this being that we are as love, active and present, in our own thoughts, in our own words, in our own feelings, if there's anything of a destructive nature there that doesn't belong there, what happens is that, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> what happens when we hold that destructive energy in the presence of love is that destructive energy starts to deteriorate. It starts to come undone. And so, the idea of being able to communicate in the presence of love allows us to open the space in ourselves to bring everything forward, every neuropeptide forward that never belonged in human physiology in the first place. And by exposure to love, it starts to dissolve. It starts to disintegrate. It starts to come undone. And so we want to really be responsible for the quality of power phrases that we use and create a safe space in our lives where we can communicate about absolutely everything that we hold to be true in our lives. When we do that, we can start to bring change to the parts of us that we would rather function differently. And we will create much different results in our lives.
You know, 2,000 years ago, they were talking about this topic with Yeshua, and they asked him, well, how do you tell where somebody's really at? And when you go to the Aramaic, in the teachings of Yeshua, what you find is some of the most genius teachings possible on how to live a human life to the fullest. And so much of it gets lost in translation through languages and through minds that are filled with hostility and fear that it's almost not recognizable for what it is. But when they asked him, how do you tell where somebody's at? He said, you look at their fruit. You look at the results they produce. Your results are always a direct correlation to what you hold in you and to the words that you speak. And your words themselves are part of your fruit. When you start observing your own regulatory speech, if you find it taking you to a place you'd rather not go, that's when you want to be very aware and start to change that speech. Because when you can change that speech, you can change where your mind is taking you. You can start to function in a totally and completely different way and produce different results. Let me share an example of responsibility communication with you. The difference between projection communication, using words to describe the content of my mind as though it's outside of me, and responsibility communication. And this is a letter written by a woman who came to one of our intensives at Heartland a few years back. And I have her permission to share it. It's, it's not, uh, you know, let anything out of the bag. And she was dealing with the issues of a lack of money, finances, were her challenge. She was a dental consultant. And there was a, a man who was uh, one of the, a world-renowned consultant, kind of in a similar field to hers who was doing a seminar up in her region of the country. And she registered for and paid a pretty good dollar to go to this seminar. And here's her letter to the person who ran the seminar. Dear Dr. Such and Such, since our brief encounter at the Marriott Hotel in Cambridge last Friday, I've found I have an issue in me that I'd like your assistance in dealing with. On that day, you walked over to me, asked me what I did, told me I wasn't welcome, and asked me to leave. I felt a lot of resentment, indignation, and invalidation. I felt I was not heard, and I was placed in a no-choice situation. I thought, this man thinks I've misrepresented myself so that I can come and pirate his material. What I wanted, then and now, is to get rid of my resentment and feelings of invalidation and be able to communicate clearly, honestly, and openly with you, and I'd like your support in doing this. What I'd like to share with you is, even as all of this was going on Friday, there was a part of me saying, there's more here than meets the eye. Stay conscious and learn the lesson. I know my reality is this. I've shifted almost 180 degrees in my approach. And after what happened Friday, I realized I still hadn't come quite far enough. Thanks to you, that's totally clear to me now. It turns out you served as a catalyst for me to make some changes in how I serve my clients. I've enclosed some tapes from Dr. Michael Rice that I thought you might enjoy. I honestly think what he has to say is the potential to heal the planet. His series is entitled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And it's about forgiveness. 
I hope you listen and feed back to me what you think. I have several clients working with his tools and we're finding them very powerful. Again, I'd like to acknowledge you for being my teacher and helping me surface an issue and heal it. I look forward to hearing from you and or perhaps meeting once again under more favorable circumstances. Peace and blessings. Joy. So she's paid big dollars and gets kicked out without a refund from this seminar. She writes this letter. A couple of days later, she hears from this fellow who has an office in Utah. He calls her and says, this is the most powerful piece of business communication I've seen in all my years in business. And I would like to meet with you and discuss it further. He was doing a seminar sometime in the next couple of weeks in New York, and where this particular weekend, he kicks her out of his seminar, though he's being paid for, to have her there. He, on his own nickel, flies in to see her. They meet. He invites her to come out and consult with him with his staff on communication. And this letter just follows step by step our responsibility communication process. He ends up offering her a job. And the job that he offers her is going to pay her more money than she's ever thought about making. And her money problem is solved. Although she decides it's not appropriate for her to take that job, turns it down. And a couple of months later, there was another person who was doing a similar consulting seminar. She went to it, paid the registration fee. And the first night of the workshop, the fellow who's up on stage doing the seminar points to her, asks who she is, and says, I want to meet with you. They meet, and it turns out, in the same circumstances where just a few weeks before she's getting kicked out, this fellow on Sunday afternoon with a whole room full of paying clients who are all in the dental profession turns his seminar over to her and asks her to come up and speak. And her money problem is solved. Responsibility communication opens up the places in us that we don't want to open up to. And after we take an admission, we'll come back and look at just how to do that process. Let's take a short intermission. So when we look at the impact that our words have on our minds and the light or the guide for our lives, it is profound. Because the mind, when you're looking at nine bits of information out of 20 trillion, a potential of 20 trillion, the mind is showing evidence. And the only evidence your mind is allowed to show you is evidence that you give it permission to through your words. So let's use an example. If I live in a world of I'm right, you're wrong, it's settled, why argue? Anybody ever find themselves living in that world? <laughs> now, what you just did is you said to your evidential mind, mind, if I run into a situation where there's a, con situation where there's a conflict, Mind, if I run into a situation where there's a conflict, you are only allowed to show me realities that prove that the conflict is somebody else's fault and that I'm right. So in essence, what I'm saying to my mind is, mind, when you build a reality about me, you go to the file where there's information about being right and you select whatever information you need. It doesn't matter if it's a total lie, you select whatever information you need to prove that I'm right. And that's the only reality my mind will be able to generate about me. And then, if I'm thinking about someone else, I'm saying to my mind, mind, you go to my file on they're wrong. 
And you're only allowed to use that data to build a reality about them. And now I live in a world of a fantasy. This is what ha has anybody here ever been accused of doing something that you absolutely never did? Of saying something that you never said? Yes. A few of you have. Uh, has that happened to you uh, once? How about putting your hand up if you've ever been accused? I see everybody in the room has their hand up. Okay, just now I'm going to count down. Keep your hands up if you want. I'm going to count down. And when we get to your number, I'm going to ask you to drop your hand. It's happened to you once, twice, three, four, five, infinite number of times. <laughs> For most, it's infinite. Now, are all the people who've said you did something you absolutely didn't do, said something you absolutely didn't say, are they all liars? No, they're not liars. They actually saw you do it. They actually heard the words come out of your mouth, although it never happened. Because if they have a mindset of, I'm right and you're wrong, and there's a conflict where they've made a mistake, their mind can't show them that they've made a mistake. And if what they need is to hear the words come out of your mouth that prove that you're wrong, those brain cells will fire in them and they'll actually hear you and see you. They'll hear you say the words, they'll see you do the behavior, even though it never happened. That's the nature of the evidential mind. In order to get past that, you have to love truth more than you love your own opinion. You have to love truth more than you love being right. You know, we live in a culture where you know, they tell us that if you're just right, it will deliver so many wonderful things to you. Has anybody here who's gotten really good at proving that you're right noticed that proving that you're right gets you more and more and more alone all the time? It never delivers its promises. All that being right does is it locks your mind into the lie that you always have to be right even when you're in error. And that isn't a way to create warm, wonderful relationships. And most people through their communication would like to create warm, wonderful relationships. And so we need to be willing to have a mind that is accurate in what it shows us. And so responsibility communication is about using language and is a system of tools for getting your mind to show you the most accurate data that it has about an object of attention or a situation, and then using words that describe the content of your mind in terms that everybody knows that you know that the content of your mind is about you, that it's not about them. And so that's what we want to look at. One of the things we know about the mind is that it is goal-driven. When you put a goal into the mind, the mind produces realities according to that goal. Because what happens when you put a goal into your mind is that you create a stress. And the functioning purpose of your mind is to alleviate that stress. And most people hold as a goal for their communication, things like being right, winning, overpowering. And they think that that's what communication is for. And that's not what communication is for. Communication is for 
exchanging information with others. And when we can do that accurately, then our relationships with others will tend to blossom. When we do it inaccurately, when we do it for other purposes, our relationships will tend to fall apart and fold. And so the first step in responsibility communication is to make a commitment. And that is that I commit. Responsibility communication starts when I first of all commit to keeping the light on, to keeping love present in my mind, and communicating with you. Now when I set that as a goal, and that goal is more powerful than all the other goals that I've ever held for my communication, then what I will do is I will set a stress into my mind and my mind will do its best to give me information about what kind of behaviors I need to do to alleviate that stress. Along with keeping love present, it's a good idea to keep the idea of goodwill in that commitment. That goodwill will serve in bringing about true communication in my relationships. So I want to communicate with you about this situation. If you look at that letter that I wrote, or I, pardon me, that I read earlier, the letter I read earlier from Joy, she says, I have an issue that I'd like your assistance in dealing with. Now, many people in a situation like she was in would be enraged. She was able to own her feelings of upset, but to remember that the goal of her communication was to enlist support in her healing process rather than being abusive toward the person that she felt had been abusive to her. When you set those kinds of goals and those goals are set with words, then your mind goes to work producing data that shows you how to do behaviors that will carry out those goals. And then you create an invitation. And the invitation goes like this. I have an issue. I'd like your help in dealing with. your help in working through. So you create, first of all, an invitation. You're inviting this person to participate in communication with you. And if you're feeling disconnected, if you're feeling fear, if you're feeling some kind of hostility, this can be a great place to actually make a physical connection with the person that you're communicating with. So that might look like, you know, I've really got some fear about talking about what's going on for me. And what I'd like to do is just, just join hands with you and just connect with you for a minute and create a safe space for us to communicate in. Would you do that with me? And by simply making that physical connection, you can open a whole different space in relationship and diffuse a lot of old hostility and fear. How many have ever been in a situation where you've had a conflict and you communicate about your conflict 
And a couple of weeks later, you find out that they were talking about a totally different situation than you were. Anybody had that happen? <laughs> well, responsibility communica communication means that you're going to take responsibility for making sure that you're both talking about the same situation. So the second step in this process is to identify, this is step two, the objective situation. So objective observation. And here you want to identify the situation not your perception of it, not the output of your mind, but the actual mechanical situation. So you identify the situation, not your perception about it. It's an important distinction because here you're just making sure that everybody's talking about the same mechanical situation. And the way that you do that is you describe the mechanical facts. So what can a camera take a picture of? And what can a tape recorder record? And of course, if you're in a situation where there's a conflict, there are two people involved in the conflict, you want to make sure that both of you are described in these mechanical facts. So you include yourself in the description of the situation. So when you give people the mechanical facts, it's what actually happened rather than your mind's thoughts about what happened. There's a place in this process, it's the next step, for your thoughts about it, but at this point, it's just for the sake of identification. You're identifying the situation that you're dealing with here. And so let's use an example using this step. Let's, let's take an example. And I'm going to set up a scenario. Let's imagine that you're sitting at home quietly reading a book. You've worked today. You came home from work. You sat down. You made yourself a cup of tea, and you're reading a book quietly in the front room. I come in the room, and I do a behavior. And what I'm going to do, and I'll ask you to communicate loudly enough so I'll be able to hear you, I'm going to ask you to just describe, using step two, the objective facts, the mechanical facts of the situation. Okay? Did you do that? So I'm not in the scene. You're sitting in the front room. And I want you to describe the situation. Okay? What just happened? Okay. What else? Violently. Can a camera take a picture of violent? Oh, 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 just a minute, just a minute. Can a camera take a picture of violent? From one frame of a camera. Here's my arm in the air. Can you tell anything about violent? So that's your thought about it. Now, what you're telling me when you say violent is that if you did that behavior, that would be violent for you. 
But if you try to convince me that that reality in your mind is true about me, we're probably going to have an end of our communication because you're going to arouse my who's in there with me. And if I'm the least bit defensive, we're finished in our communication. And remember that your goal here is to get the reality in your mind intact into my mind. To do that responsibly means you're going to have to be responsible for the output of your mind. A camera can't take a picture of violent here. Make sense? So I threw the eraser, yes. And then someone else said, I had a mad look on my face. Now, can the camera from one frame of the picture, can you tell whether I was mad or whether I just got the news that I won the lottery? Can you tell? Can't do it. Mad, what you're telling me is if you had that look on your face, that would mean that you were mad. But you know something? The fact that that's what it means for you doesn't necessarily mean that that's what it means for me. And your job I would offer in communicating is not to try to convince somebody else that your reality, the output of your mind, is true about them. The objective of the communication is to just get your reality intact into their mind. So you might be able to say, my lips were downturned. Camera can take a picture of that. That's a mechanical fact. But when you interpret it as mad, you're telling me something that's not objective. At this stage, we just want the objective facts. Does that make sense? Okay. Anybody else? What, what just happened? You left a mark on the board. I left a mark on the board. Okay. <laughs> I made a loud noise. Okay. Anything else? Anything else that needs to go into the picture to use step two in describing what just unfolded? I walked away without picking it up, okay? I dispelled the piece. Can a camera take a picture of that? Can a tape recorder record that? No, no. That's not a mechanical fact. That doesn't belong at this stage in the communication. You know, what you're telling me is something went on inside of you as a result of what took place. But you're not going to get very far in presenting that's a mechanical fact because it's not. At this stage, we just want to identify the mechanical facts of the situation so everybody's talking about the same situation. There's one other piece that's missing in using step two. Anybody know what it is? I didn't say anything, right? What else? I put my hands in my pockets. More important than those things, though. Remember we said, you know, if, if, if there's an issue here you want to communicate about, it's going to be really hard for you to convince me that you're doing responsibility communication when you tell me all about me and you're not involved. You didn't talk to me. Okay. But, but you haven't involved yourself yet. The mechanical facts include, gee, I was sitting in the front room reading a book. Now you're involved in the situation. If you've got a conflict with somebody and your mechanical facts are all about them and what they did, you're not going to get very far in doing responsible communication. You need to involve yourself in it. So in essence, the mechanical facts are, I was sitting in the front room reading a book. You came in. I noticed you had a, a chalkboard eraser in your hand. 
You threw it and it hit the whiteboard. You put your hand in your pocket, you turned around, and your lips were downturned. They were the mechanical facts. That's all. Does that make sense for this stage? And again, there's, there's room for the issue and your perceptual reality, but at this point, we just want to get the situation identified so that we're both talking about the same thing. Okay? Then comes step three, and in step three, you get to the subjective observations. And here is where you start to describe the content of your mind. You identify your thoughts and feelings, and you do it with words that reflect your awareness that you are describing your reality. For instance, the, uh, the one about you shattered the peace. You know, if somebody's the least bit sensitive, they're probably going to feel like, you mean I'm to blame here? And that will tend to shut down communication faster than anything. But if that was your issue, then the description would go something like this. Now, I have an issue that I'd really like to communicate about. I've got a little bit of fear about it. I'd like to connect with you, and I'd like to be able to clean it up. And last night, I was sitting in the front room, you know, having a cup of tea and reading a book, and you came in. You had a chalkboard eraser in your hand. You threw it and hit the whiteboard. You left a mark on the board. It fell to the floor. You put your hand in your pocket. You turned around. Your lips seemed to be downturned. And I felt like my peace had been shattered. Now what you just did is you took responsibility for the fact that your peace was shattered. Instead of blaming me. Now I, if I'm sensitive I might say, well I didn't do anything to shatter your peace. What are you talking about? So, no, I'm not saying you shattered my peace. I'm just saying that's what went on inside of me. And I'm willing to own that that's what happened for me. And what I want to do is I want you to understand what was going on for me in that situation. Or maybe it was, gee, you know, when I saw you come in the room and do that, I thought that you were angry. 